Welcome to the official Screenwriting Podcast. I'm Adam Levenberg. This is our 31st show, and a little bit later on, I'll be telling you about the five favorite shows from last year that I highly recommend in case you're new to the podcast. A reminder about who I am, I was a development executive, and I started working with unrepresented screenwriters and learned that there was a whole body of information that wasn't necessarily covered in screenwriting books. So I wrote my own book about my experience with the unrepresented writers called The Starter Screenplay, which is advice for screenwriters who are trying to break into the business. Doesn't mean that you've never taken a class, doesn't mean that you haven't read any other books. It's not about the first screenplay that you write, it's about the first screenplay that you use in order to break into the industry. So check that out. It's available on Kindle. It's available through my website, officialscreenwriting.com, and it is also available in print on Amazon. I want to talk real quickly about a couple of things where if you're a writer who's thought about hiring me, but maybe, you know, finances didn't allow it, there's a couple of things that I can use some help with, and I'd much rather... uh, you know, be able to use the resources of the audience as opposed to bothering some of my friends who might be uh, familiar with some of these uh, programs that I need help with. So first off is GarageBand. If you know your way inside and out of GarageBand, I want to talk to you, work something out, uh, you know, maybe a free concept consult. Maybe we can work something out for a free script consult. I really could use some help because the currently I have been doing probably somewhere from two to three episodes for every one that I actually put up. Because sometimes I'll ramble for an entire hour, and then I'll think back and I'll say, you know, I I just think I missed these points. There were these couple things on my notes that I didn't get to. Maybe I'll do it again. Um, And I really could use some help with that, so I need to be taught how to edit and also, you know, uh, to occasionally troubleshoot. Uh, so again, get in contact with me. Uh, you can email me at the starter screenplay at gmail.com. Uh, also need some help with WordPress. I often forget how to do things in WordPress and my web guy has taken a new job and I don't want to bother him. So, uh, if you're great with WordPress or Adobe Illustrator, there's a project I'm working on separate from screenwriting. It's kind of time consuming. And again, if you're somebody who wants to do that uh, one script consultation, but you know, can't necessarily afford it, this might be a way to, to barter for that. Also, also, I need a Japanese to English translator uh, the, regarding a project that I'm working on. I just need to interact with uh, somebody in Japan who's not incredibly great with the English, and I think things might go a little bit smoother if I could have my English being translated into Japanese, uh, and then uh, if he could respond to me directly uh, through a translator, it might help move things along. And remember, by the way, if you're listening to this, and maybe it's February or even March, and you're thinking, oh, I'm late to the party on this, you know what, check in with me anyway, because you just never know. People take sometimes a long time to listen to the podcast, they get behind in them. And, you know, uh, there might be an opportunity still. So again, feel free to check in the starter screenplay at gmail.com where you can also reach me to discuss, uh, any thoughts that you have about the podcast. Um, okay. Favorite episodes of the podcast from last year. I'm recommending you check out the episode where I talk about the, uh, first 
five or six minutes of Straw Dogs. That, that's Rod Lurie's Straw Dogs, not the Sam Peckinpah one. I was really impressed with the opening of Straw Dogs and the amount of animal imagery in just those first couple of minutes, how they initially set up the characters. And, you know, a reminder when it comes to this podcast... Please listen, not because you're interested in the movie that I'm going to be talking about, but because you might hear about something that, you know, that you hadn't thought about. You know, I don't think you need to see Straw Dogs to listen to my analysis of the first five minutes. And also, on most of these podcasts, I am mainly going to be talking about the openings of them because that's where most of the screenwriting happens. It happens in the first act. It's all about the setup and payoff. And to do that, uh, the best films set everything up immediately. So, you know, please don't hesitate to listen to a podcast just because you haven't seen the movie yet. And if I'm going to give spoilers or talk about the ending, I will absolutely uh, say, hey, this is where you want to cut out. And also, you know, I'll often talk about other subjects and headlines and things going on in the world of screenwriting in Hollywood that aren't related to the film that is the title of that week's episode. And I usually get to the film stuff second. So you might want to listen to the first half of the podcast and then say, okay, I don't want to hear Adam talk about, say, The Iron Lady, which is a movie that I just took a lot of notes on. Wow, that movie is a piece of shit. Uh, interesting performance from Meryl Streep, but my God, is that just one of the most inept... Honored projects that I've ever seen. Um, in any case, uh, second episode I recommend Oz the Great and Powerful. I think I had some interesting thoughts on the setup of that. Categories of horror. If you're a horror screenwriter, please check out the episode I did on horror where I talk about what I believe to be the six categorizations that you can use in order to think about horror in terms of writing screenplays. Uh, the Gravity episode where I talk about conflict, I thought that was good, and where I talk about Behind the Candelabra, the Matt Damon, uh, Steven Soderbergh, Michael Douglas film, which was terrific and has won all sorts of awards and is now available at Redbox and Netflix, and you should definitely, definitely see it if you haven't. Um, and that's the movie, of course, also Gravity, but uh, Behind the Candelabra is a film that you should go out and watch, whereas you can actually get a lot from just listening to the first couple minutes about Straw Dogs. You don't have to watch the movie first. Um, Next up, The Blacklist. Uh, 2013 Blacklist has been announced. I'm not going to get into it right now, but go online, read about it, see if you can track down some of the scripts. Uh, they're out there and not really that difficult to find at this point. Um, you know, The Blacklist is interesting. I've talked about it on so many podcasts, I won't talk about it again, but um, you know, it started as this survey of executives and has now turned into a company of its own where they sell feedback and provide a little bit of an opening for writers who are already there, who already know what they're doing. And I had a client that, uh, two weeks ago who submitted his script in there. You might say, well, why, if he hired you, did he go to the blacklist also? The, the answer to that is uh, I was the second consultant he worked with. I worked with him a lot. And, you know, there were a couple of people that I was willing to show his script to. He wanted to go ahead and get more feedback uh, from, you know, the blacklist because you can hire them. He actually hired them to do 10 reads. Uh, so I have read now the responses from 10 different readers that they have. I found them to be thorough. And, you know, for 40 or 50 bucks, you can get 
very direct feedback from them. Now, I'm not, here's the thing about using that feedback. I, I don't know how helpful it is to use that feedback. You know, I do consulting. I'll talk to a writer about a script for a couple of hours. I'll spend several hours reading it. I take notes on it. I go through most of the script with them. Um, I take notes on the script. I send you a set of notes and then we talk again three hours sometimes. You know, I, I don't have a time limit. It's a little bit different when you're getting feedback that's three quarters of a page from a reader who you will never speak to. And that's what the blacklist offers. However, um, if you think, you know, if, if you think that, hey, my script is ready and you've had some doors slammed in your face or you can't seem to get your t foot in the door, there's worse ways of doing it than sending your script to them and finding out where do they rate your script on a scale of one to 10, because I'm actually impressed with where they rated the script that was sent in. And I can absolutely guarantee you that this script would have been celebrated by many places out there. And the responses that I'm seeing, there's, you know, they're, they're more muted in their response to it, appreciating what's in there, but also pointing out some of the elements that were not uh, changed. And, you know, I had a very specific experience working with this writer because I worked with him for a few months as he reworked a treatment that had been worked on by one of the great script consultants out there. I mean, I'd like to think of myself as great also, but, you know, this is one of the more legendary names. And he ended up trying to write a script and it turned into 170 pages. So I said, okay, we have to go back and rework the treatment. And we did. And now he has a script that, you know, is 115. Um, but, you know, the, again, I'm just very impressed by their feedback. And I think that if they give you a 6 out of 10 or a 7 out of 10 or a 4 out of 10 or a 3 out of 10, uh, you can guess that it's within one to one and a half or maybe two points of where it should actually be. And I'm impressed by how, you know, reading 10 different uh, responses, how they're all kind of in the same ballpark uh, in terms of their response to the script. Some actually liked it and said, you know, there's a future for this project. Others said, eh, and I could sense the hesitation. You know, one of the things with any of these companies is because the reader is not going to be interacting with the writer, they're going to be, they're going to make you feel good about hiring them. And they want to be constructive also, but they, they do want to make you feel good and they're going to write some really nice things. And I kind of know how to look through that and read through that and say, okay, this is where they're just blowing smoke up your ass. And this, this right here is a really good point. Um, so moving on, uh, great American pitch fest is coming up. Uh, again, I have an entire podcast episode where I talk about advice for people who go to that. It's a great event. It's in June. You can go to their website. I think it's GAP com, um, Great American Pitch Fest, June 5th to 6th or 7th, and I may be speaking there. I'm talking to a screenwriter uh, who has a movie coming up about doing a fun, uh, a fun walkthrough of certain scenes and sequences, and maybe I'll even put on my script consultant hat and, you know, talk about one place where I felt that the scenes perhaps could have been expanded to do something a little bit more interesting than what's on the page there. I don't know. I'll have to be very constructive about that. But um, that is something, you know, again, I recommend don't, don't remortgage your house to go. But if this is the kind of thing that you're into and you can afford to come to LA and get a hotel room for two nights, 
this is a great way to come and meet screenwriters. You know, Shane Black, I think last year, spent hours just hanging out talking to writers there. Um, you know, again, it's a really cool experience. Again, just because Shane Black talks to you for 20, 25 minutes, which he does. Um, and by the way, not everybody gets to talk to Shane Black for 20 minutes. That's not what I mean. But, um, you know, he did spend hours talking to people from what I heard. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily get something that's going to be the difference between success and non-success. It's just, it's a really cool thing to be able to do. Truth be told, I've never met Shane Black. I got into film school based on an analysis of a Shane Black movie, The Long Kiss Goodnight. I love Shane Black and, you know, it'd be a great experience to meet him. Um, but again, don't remortgage your house because I know people who fly from overseas to come to these kind of things. And I just recommend, you know, be smart about where you're spending your money because, you know, again, it costs 50 bucks for the to get one read from the blacklist. Maybe it's a little bit more. I actually haven't looked. Um, I know that that's what it costs when you buy 10 reads. Uh, you know, but um, in any case, uh, I'm going to move on here. All right. See, this is why I need an, this is why I need to be able to edit my podcast a little bit more effectively, and I'm going to challenge myself not to keep stopping and restarting, and uh, also to uh, not throw out the podcast when I'm done with it because that's happening way too often. All right, uh, so let me move on to some thoughts about the Oscars, and I'll see if I can tie in some some other thoughts about. Uh, screenwriting and how you can use some tools in order to guide the construction of your own projects. Now, by the way, I should let you know I have not seen her, but I'm a huge Spike Jones fan, and I want to suggest that that falls into the category of what I talk about in my book where I talk about Jurassic Park, where it's a, it's a, I, I believe that it's set rel in relative present day, but it's a futuristic technology that we know is coming. And, you know, it, it sort of looks into the world of not only technology, but also relationships and perfectly marries them. What if somebody fell in love with Siri on his iPhone? And what if Siri was able to interact a little bit more and be able to provide a sort of companionship that we know machines are very, very close to being able to provide. And what are the limits of those relationships going to be and how might they work? Uh, this, again, to me is very close to Jurassic Park. It's saying, okay, we know the, f the future that's coming. How do we set it in a very particular situation in present day? And, you know, that's something, uh, if you're writing a book, it doesn't need to be set in present day. But there's a reason, you know, if you're writing a movie, that it is. Because it makes the it makes it feel more relevant. You know, a movie like Face Off, where they have this technology of face transplants. Again, face transplants were an idea that had been around since 1960. It took 50 years for them to get it right, and they have now. They can do a face transplant. Um, but Face Off in 1996 said, hey, what if... What if we could do it right now? And that's something where when you see interesting articles about what's going to happen in technology, ask yourself, what would that, how do I drag that back to today? What, what would that be like if, bam, it just happened, if they made that big discovery today? And who would my main character be and how would that operate? So 
Wolf of Wall Street, which I am going to see this week, uh, is interesting because it is the ultimate wish fulfillment in a very guy-oriented sort of way, I would guess. I, again, I haven't seen the film yet, but I saw the trailer, and there's a heck of a lot of wish fulfillment going on there. There's a lot of uh, exuberance and a lot of, what if I just had piles and piles and piles of money? What if I was, you know, Scrooge McDuck, you know, and had the Room of Golden Coins, which was actually recreated for Oz the Great and Powerful. If you've seen that film, you know, that's a very DuckTales sort of scene that I'm, I'm absolutely certain the writer must have gotten from DuckTales. Uh, that's where ideas come from. You know, you see things in your childhood, you update them. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because if you look back, there was a film called Wall Street. Uh, in 1987, that was uh, Charlie Sheen and Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas won his first acting Oscar for that film. And the, uh, you know, you look back and like, what did Charlie Sheen do? Uh, he was a young up and comer uh, in the greed is good uh, period of the eighties. And he had a nice apartment. He bought some art. He went out to nice dinners. He got a hot girlfriend so when you think about it, like, it, it's so restrained compared to just what I see in the trailer for Wolf of Wall Street. And Wolf of Wall Street is like, what if you could just do fucking anything? Um, and what if you just had so much money you were drowning in it? Uh, you know, there's that wonderful moment in the trailer where there's these investigators or FBI or IRS, whatever the hell they are. And they get in Leonardo DiCaprio's face. And as they're walking away, he throws money at them. He just throws money at the government like that's that's such a great fuck you that's such a that's such a great moment so i'm looking forward to that we'll see if the movie holds up over three hours um and i'm going to talk a little bit about some surprises in terms of oscar nominations not necessarily as much uh surprises in terms of what i'm surprised about but uh or but sort of in terms of the Academy, how they're changing, because one of the things the Academy has done over the last couple of years is really worked uh, in order to lower the age of the average or median participant in the Oscars, uh, in Oscar voting. Now, again, you automatically get nominated uh, or if you get nominated, you're automatically in the Academy. So someone like, say, Haley Joel Osment gets nominated at 10 years old. He has been voting since he was 10 uh, and getting the free DVDs and all that stuff. And he will get that for the rest of his life. It's a, it's a lifetime kind of thing. But the problem with having a lifetime uh, membership is that you end up with a lot of old people. And old people have very conservative tastes. And, you know, the older we get, the probably less adventurous, uh, in our movie taste. Um, and as a result of that, you know, that's kind of why in certain sections of the Academy, you know, there used to be this thing where like every single year, a Holocaust documentary would win the best documentary feature. And it was just, it wasn't representative of what was going on in the world of documentaries. Like, yes, there were some wonderful Holocaust documentaries. They didn't necessarily have to win every year though. Uh, there were some other great documentaries that were getting overlooked. So they changed the rules. They changed things up. And I like that. Um, and we we see some of these things happening. I think the biggest surprise for me was that Blue Jasmine did not get nominated for Best Picture. Um, you know, it would have been a surprise if it didn't make the top five in a year with only five nominations. The fact that there were nine nominations and Blue Jasmine didn't get one of them. Uh, was interesting to me, and it was interesting that Dallas Buyers Club did. 
Now, I talk a little bit about Dallas Buyers Club in one of the previous episodes. I recommend you listen to it. I talk a little bit about the first couple of minutes. Um, I want to talk real quickly about the moment that I forgot to talk about with Dallas Buyers Club. Um, And that moment uh, is, I believe I forgot to talk about this. Now, by the way, sometimes with this podcast, I absolutely forget what I talk about so much so that while I was going through looking at the five recommended podcasts that I was going to say, hey, go back and listen to these, I saw that I talked about the heat and I have no idea what the hell I talked about in that episode. Absolutely none. Um, so, you, you know, with, I, I'm pretty certain though that I was kicking myself after the Dallas Buyers Club, uh, or talked about it cause I did not mention the very interesting moment where, uh, after Matthew McConaughey has been diagnosed with, uh, I, th- I think it was full blown AIDS, uh, he, and told he has 30 days to live. He tells the doctors, Hey, go fuck yourself. He leaves. I think we covered that in the podcast, but then, um, he goes to the library And, you know, one of the things that writers sometimes do is, especially when they're dealing with news articles, they will give you full sentences, like, you know, like somehow an audience is going to read. Audiences don't read. Um, That's not a judgment, a value-based judgment on audiences or saying that they're illiterate. It's just that you don't put words up on the screen for them to read unless it's, say, the beginning of a Star Wars movie. Um, So all you're doing, what, what they do is, this is how it, they lay it out. Uh, he goes and he sees, um, he, he reads an article about uh, HIV, if they called it that at the time, I forget. Uh, but he's reading an article and he sees uh, just a couple of words, a couple of, uh, you know, I think like one of the things was IV drug user. And then we have a flashback. Now, again, I have often said, don't use flashbacks. I don't recommend them. But if you do use them, you know what they are? They're supposed to be flashes. And that's what Dallas Buyers Club gives us. There's a moment where we see him in a motel room. It's just fucking a prostitute, I presume. And um, even if she wasn't a prostitute, uh we see him having sex with her and it's, it's a flash. It's a second, maybe two seconds. And then we see him look. And from his perspective, we see her arm and she's got needle marks on it. And then we cut back to Matthew McConaughey in the library and he says, fuck. And, you know, slams his hands down or something like that. Um, so in, in a single moment, uh, or in a couple of images, you know, we take a couple of key words and that's what you want to do. If you're having a, a character scan an article, which often happens in detective movies, you know, the scene where a character goes to the library and learns stuff is a pretty standard thing. You're just going to want to write the key words that are going to lead us to the next point or the next idea. And that's what this movie did. And then it uses a flashback to explain how he ended up in his position with two images. He's having sex with a girl, sees needle marks in her arm, bam, three things put together. uh, And we very quickly dispose of something without a lot of backstory, without taking a lot of time. Uh, I was really surprised that Tom Hanks did not get nominated for Captain Phillips uh, and that the film was nominated. I I, I wasn't that surprised that the film was nominated necessarily because it was sort of a surprise hit. Um, But 
to see the Best Picture nomination without the acting nomination, usually it works the other way around. Uh, and, you know, Tom Hanks is a favorite of the Academy. So maybe, again, um, this is speaking to the younger generation coming in. And, you know, there were a lot of really interesting performances this year that, you know, were not overlooked, including Christian Bale getting a Best Actor nomination for American Hustle, which for my money, I have a feeling American Hustle is going to win Best Picture. Uh, you heard that here first. Um and maybe I'll talk about that at another time. I had a whole bunch of thoughts that I was going to share on American Hustle. And then I said, no, you know, you got to go see it, go enjoy it, see it in theaters. Uh, you'll like it. I do want to talk real quickly about Nebraska. One of the biggest surprises for me was that Will Forte did not get nominated, uh, as best supporting actor because all of the critics groups and the Golden Globes put him in the best supporting actor category. And why? Because Bruce Dern, uh, was tipped as a and pushed in the advertisements as a best actor uh, potential nominee. Here's the thing. If you want to, the world of awards is a really messed up, wacky, hey, we go for the category that we think we can win or get nominated in kind of thing. Um, I actually think they fucked up here. I think the filmmakers or the, the studio fucked up because Bruce Dern probably could have won Best Supporting Actor if they had pushed him for Best Supporting Actor. And they could have uh, pushed Will Forte for Best Actor and he wouldn't have gotten nominated. But hey, he didn't get a nomination anyway, although he definitely deserved one. Um, and the, the reason that I would suggest that is because Will Forte is the star of Nebraska. Now, look, you can nominate him or not nominate him in whatever categories you want, but the reality of the film, now I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the film. It's about a young man whose father is in the early stages of Alzheimer's and dad keeps escaping the house and walking through the streets of their town and stuff. And it turns out that dad has gotten a publisher's clearinghouse. Uh, you may have won $1 million uh, letter. And he thinks that he won a million dollars and he can't drive anymore. So he wants to go to Nebraska because he doesn't want to send it in the mail. He wants to go in person to collect his million dollars. And, of course, everybody thinks that it's bullshit and that it's ridiculous and that, hey, everybody knows that these things are a scam or it's a lie. Or if you read the fine print, it says you may – if you have won, we'll tell you you've won a million dollars. Like, But Will Forte says, you know what? Dad keeps escaping the house. He's dead set on going to Nebraska. I'm going to take him there. I'm going to take two days off of work. We're going to go on a road trip. And Will Forte ends up in the small town where his father grew up, where his father's family still lives and where his parents met and then moved from. Um, so, you know, this is a film where Will Forte learns about his father, who's this crusty old, you know, curmudgeon, um, and learns about where his dad came from and what he was all about. And it's not all good. It's not all heartwarming. But he gets a full picture by the end about who this man is that he really didn't know very well. Um, the father role is secondary. And, you know, when I said that awards are screwy, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, 
the, there's a lot of precedents. I think the, the best example probably is Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man, uh, where Dustin Hoffman won Best Actor. And, you know, the, the conventional wisdom today, I guess, is that, you know, really Tom Cruise is the one who carried that movie. And that's what people talk about. Well, here's the thing. If you're a screenwriter, um, you know, talking about, well, is Tom Cruise really the star of Rain Man or is Dustin Hoffman and who do you nominate for awards and all that stuff? That's, that's for other people. But if you're a screenwriter, you better well know that Tom Cruise's character, Charlie Babbitt, is the star of Rain Man. He is the protagonist. He is the one with the character arc. He is the one who changes. He's the one with the girlfriend. He's the one, you know, he is the star of that film. And the role of Raymond is a supporting role. And it's the same thing in Nebraska. Will Forte is the star of that film. He is the protagonist. He is the one whose eyes we see the events unfold from the perspective of. Um, So, you know, I, I would recommend, again... Nebraska is for Alexander Payne diehard fans only. If you love Sideways and The Descendants, go. You'll enjoy it. If you've never seen Sideways or The Descendants, Nebraska is not the place to start with Alexander Payne. Uh, I recommend you watch Election instead. It's the movie that made Reese Witherspoon a superstar. Uh, He is a really smart uh, director, and he does something really interesting in all his films where he mixes local talent with huge actors. So in a film like Election, uh, that's where Chris Klein came from. I think Chris Klein was a local kid who lived near the high school or went to the high school where they shot the film, and he turned into an actor who you know from American Pie and Rollerball and stuff like that. Uh, So, you know, it's a really interesting uh, dynamic that goes on in his films where you get to see all these local actors uh, really representing the worlds that are being created uh, or that that he's trying to depict. And then, you know, you plop a couple of other major names in uh, with them. So uh, I had the same reaction to Inside Llewellyn Davis, by the way. I was not surprised it wasn't nominated because the film is just punishing. But from a screenwriting perspective, let's just talk about it. So this is a Coen Brothers movie. It's about a young folk singer in 1960 or 1961 uh, who's just struggling in New York City. He's sleeping on couches. He knocks up his friend's wife. Uh, (laughs) You know, like there's all these... um, you know, or by the way, he may or may not have that. That's sort of the problem where he slept with his friend's wife and now she's pregnant and they don't quite know what to do about it. And she doesn't know who's the father. And it's a film that is just incredibly, I'm not going to use the word dull. It's, it doesn't have the same humorous punch that we have in a lot of Coen Brothers movies, but it has the same repetitive punishment that the Coen Brothers, uh, often go to. So uh, if you look at off the top of my head, I'm thinking Big Lebowski and A Serious Man, both of which, if you haven't seen, go start with those uh, or Fargo. But Big Lebowski and A Serious Man fall into the same category of the type of script that the same, it's the same thing as Inside Llewellyn Davis. It's a series of events where our hero is just knocked around like a pinball from, you know, situation to situation, meeting a wide variety of characters who come back. And it's almost, they're, they're almost sort of road trip movies inside of an, without the road trip. Um, 
because we have a and they're black comedies. They're they're movies where the character is completely out of control of his circumstances. And that's really what black comedies are about. You know, when people say often black comedies, they think, oh, it's got dark humor. That's not what a black comedy is. And again, that's the kind of thing that a critic can say, oh, there's really funny stuff involving blood. It's a black comedy. Well, that's great. You know, most film critics don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Um, but if you're a screenwriter, you better know a black comedy is a movie where a hero is bounced around like a pinball, having absolutely no control over their situation. And it's a very rare story form because most of the time the hero is in control of their mission even when it seems like they're not they're they have a clear-cut goal and they are trying to achieve it there's forward momentum in most screenplays and in black comedies the hero is just struggling to stay afloat and get some air um and survive so that's that's essentially what inside Llewellyn Davis is and again if you haven't seen a Coen Brothers movie Fargo, The Big Lebowski, uh, and I, I really liked A Serious Man. So the last thing I'll talk about is the surprise that was expressed. And I, I was not surprised and surprised at the same time, which is that Emma Thompson did not get nominated for Saving Mr. Banks. Now, I'll, I'll talk real quickly. The, the plot of Saving Mr. Banks is that Walt Disney is desperate to ha get the rights to make his movie Mary Poppins. But the problem is that the author, P.L. Travers, played by Emma Thompson, is dead set against giving the rights to Walt Disney. She hates everything about Disney. She hates his worldview. She hates the happiness and cheerfulness of everything. Um, she's a very problematic uh, human being with a lot of mental issues. And what happens in the plot is that Walt Disney brings her to Hollywood to sort of woo her and let her work with the team, the songwriters, the Sherman brothers, and the screenwriter, and lets her spend a couple of weeks with them in order to sort of get her to sign off on this movie. Um, now, the, the thing that the movie does is it makes it P.L. Travers, the main character. You know, if you look at the posters, all you need to know about this is that Emma Thompson gets top billing over Tom Hanks, which means that Tom Hanks is probably in a quarter of as much screen time as Emma Thompson, because if it was anywhere near parody, he could have been in less of the movie than her and still gotten top billing. That's just how that works. So you know that it's a supporting role if he's taking second billing to her. Um, having, again, nothing to do with quality. Nobody's questioning the talents of either one of those people. It's just how billing works in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of actors who sell tickets. So the, the thing is that the film constantly flashes back to Emma Thompson's childhood. And we see her re-experiencing some really traumatic shit in her past. Her father was an alcoholic who had no control over his disease and her mother was suicidal. And she had to deal with this as, I believe, the oldest child of three. Um, and the kid's not that old. She's like somewhere between seven and ten uh, that we see her in her childhood. And we'll keep flashing back to see the story unfold, to see her father unravel and eventually uh, die from, from his alcoholism. Uh, so the... The thing about this movie is that it doesn't take the obvious 
uh, the obvious perspective. Now, in my book, The Starter Screenplay, I recommend – now, again, the people who made this movie, it's based on a book. They had a take on it. They have a great writer-director who's not credited as a writer, but John Lee Hancock is well-known, you know, script doctor and director. So you have a lot of people who knew what they were doing here. But I'm going to recommend if you're an unrepresented writer, if you're starting new on a project, you shift your perspective to whose movie is this? Okay, I know what the story is. The story is the struggle that Walt Disney had to get Mary Poppins made and to get this woman, this impossible woman, this mentally ill woman, to sign off on something that she doesn't want to do. The, 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 you know, the, the problem is that this film focuses on her and she's the main character. And the, the film thinks that we're going to get around how difficult of a human being she is and how un deeply unpleasant she is by creating comedy out of it. And boy, does that work for about 25 or 30 minutes. And then, you know, it just becomes, to me, it became irritating. Um... Now, that's a taste thing. Some people may like the movie. I, I went in hoping for a lot more of the spirit of Mary Poppins, and I had a couple of Mary Poppins songs and a story about a girl whose father was a, you know, alcoholic killing himself. And, again, I, the movie is just so deeply unpleasant to me. Again, it's not surprising it didn't get nominated for Best Picture. But I am, you know, I, I do... Emma Thompson really committed to this performance. She was willing to be unpleasant in a way that rarely happens in studio films. And I, again, I can appreciate her performance and the humor that, that comes with a lot of it. Uh, and, and again, I'm sort of surprised she didn't get nominated, but again, I think that that's the reveal of saving Mr. Banks, which is that, um, it's not a film for children. It's not a film for people who love Mary Poppins. It's a very, very dark story. Um, but again, I'll just circle back to, you know, I talk about this in the starter screenplay in my book. You always want to look for who has the goal, who's the protagonist, who's got the insurmountable mission that, you know, with, with the obstacles that, and in this case, it's obviously Walt Disney. He, he's dealing, he has this dream. He says, I, I've promised my daughters for 20 years uh, that I, I would make this movie and I'm, I can't not give my daughters what I told them. That would make me a liar and I don't lie to my daughters. Um, and you see that, you know, this is a guy who pretty much has everything and this is the one thing he can't have. This is the one thing that money can't buy. Um, for all of his power, he can't make this mentally ill woman sign the papers because she doesn't want to. And she's fucking horrified by everything that is Disney. Um, so, you know, he's the hero of the film and yet we tell the movie from her perspective. And that means that we have to dip into her past in a really, again, I, I found it to be unpleasant way. Colin Farrell, by the way, is great in the film. He plays her father in the flashbacks. Um, but, you know, again, you, you always want to look and say, who is, who's got the mission? In this movie, Walt Disney has the mission. So to me, there's no excuse for making a different type of film. Now, again, they must have read this script and really liked it at the studio. They might, you know, you have a writer come in with a take based on a book. Um, 
but takes can be changed or, you know, I think actually as movies move forward, you know, you tend to kind of stick to the way that things are. And, you know, even Tom Hanks might have read the script and said, well, I think, you know, I, I'm not quite sure why she's the star of it, but Walt Disney is a great role and I'm going to take this role anyway. Um, I'd love to play Walt Disney. I'd love to, to do that. And, you know, it's a very sympathetic role and it's a sympathetic portrayal of Walt Disney, which is also one of the reasons that probably uh, the, the, the Academy didn't like it because Walt Disney was a very difficult, complicated person with a lot of of his own perhaps issues uh, without getting too specific. And, you know, this film does not even begin to touch on any of that. Instead, it sort of uh, deals with all of the issues regarding PL Travers. Um, I'm going to not talk about the ending just because it's interesting, but I will give the film credit for this. And the, the story that that has been widely repeated is that P.L. Travers hated this movie so much that she cried throughout the premiere. And this film has the balls to show us that, but it also under it, it it's not because she hates the movie. It's not, it's because she's experiencing her you know, re-experiencing the elements of her childhood. And it's just a very difficult thing for her to confront. And that's why she was crying. And I, th- I found that very interesting because I actually tweeted, and you can follow me at Starter Script on Twitter, uh, and, you know, read through some of my tweets and stuff. There's some good stuff in there. Uh, but, you know, I tweeted, I wonder if the movie's going to have the balls to show this because she hated the movie. And that to me was sort of a funny thing because you watch this whole thing where she's convinced to sign off on it because we know that she did it because we have a movie of Mary Poppins. So clearly she was persuaded and yet she went to the premiere and just cried through the whole thing and hated it. And that, that of course was not the case. And I was corrected. And, um, you know, this film, uh, had an approach that, that I could appreciate. Cause again, you're talking about all, talking about a lot of really talented people, even though I talked about the unpleasantness of it, that doesn't mean that it's not well done. So that's all for this week. Again, uh, email me at the starter screenplay at gmail.com. Again, I'm looking for people who know GarageBand, WordPress, Adobe Illustrator, Japanese translator, and, uh, any thoughts on the podcast, feel free to email me questions. Love to answer questions. Starter screenplay at gmail.com. Also, you can uh, check out my website, officialscreenwriting.com. And that's for you also on iTunes. Subscribe on iTunes. You can download the episodes. Again, the ones I recommend if you haven't listened to them, Straw Dogs, Oz the Great and Powerful, Categories of Horror, Gravity, and Behind the Candelabra. I'll be back sometime in the next couple of weeks with a new episode for you. Take care.